0: Hello and welcome to Gamma Project. My name is Dean Statman, I'll be your host, and this is episode 6. This episode is brought to you by iFit Nourish. iFit Nourish delivers personalized nutrition to your door with protein, vitamins, and minerals to support your individual needs. When you go to ifitnourish.com, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire with some basic information, things like gender, age, height, and weight, before providing insights into your lifestyle, like your typical energy levels, daily sun exposure, whether or not you're a smoker, how often you exercise, the kinds of exercise you do, and of course, your goals. In the dietary section, you'll input how much fruit and vegetables you get through your day, any dietary preferences, like if you prefer vegan or a vegetarian mix, food allergies, how often you plan to drink the shakes, and whether you intend to use them as a meal replacement or supplements. You can also pick your favorite flavor. Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight, increase your endurance, improve energy levels or athletic performance, or even just maintain, iFit Nourish was created to arm you with the nutrition that you need to go after your goals while also maintaining a solid daily nutritional foundation. When I went to ifitnourish.com to try it out for myself, the questionnaire took less than a minute to fill out. And when the system presented its recommendation, I was able to look through the supplement facts before completing my order. Your first personalized order is free. Just pay $5 shipping, and you'll also get a free shaker bottle. I like to eat vegan as often as I possibly can, so I got two weeks worth of a daily protein shake made from plant-based ingredients. And when you're ready to re-up, use discount code JUST4U, that's J-U-S-T, number four, letter U, at checkout to take another 20% of any personalized iFitNourish mix. Try it for yourself today at iFitNourish.com. That's I-F-I-T-N-O-U-R-I-S-H dot com. What's going on everyone and welcome to episode 6 of the Gamma Project podcast. Once again, my name is Dean Statman. We've got a hell of a show for you today. Vince Lebon is one of the most creative and astute minds in the footwear industry. In 2012, inspired by his flight attendant wife, Kat, a.k.a. Roly, the Melbourne-based designer founded Roly Nation, a collection of stylish, lightweight, travel-friendly footwear. In our interview, Vince tells the story of how he sold his first 500 pairs of shoes, his entire inventory, in just four weeks. And from there, grew Rolly to become one of Australia's most popular footwear brands. To personally spearhead Rolly's introduction into the U.S. market, Vince recently moved his family to Brooklyn, New York, Shortly after arriving in the States, Vince won a scholarship to Brooklyn's prestigious Pensoul Academy, which subsequently served as the set for YouTube's original series Lace Up! The Ultimate Sneaker Challenge. Vince was cast into the show and ended up winning it all after designing a shoe that was personally selected by NBA star James Harden. The victory landed Vince a job at Adidas, where he now creates top-secret future footwear concepts at the brand's secretive Brooklyn Creator Farm. He also just put out a limited edition sneaker for ASICS, an opportunity earned during his time at Pencil's fueling the future of footwear Masterclass. In this interview, Vince and I discuss his creative process, as well as how he is able to juggle several projects at once. We talk about exactly what he did to grow his first brand, and how through social media, pop-up activations, and collaborations with others, he was able to scale the business internationally. Persistence is a major theme in this conversation and Vince recounts specifically how certain roadblocks that he's encountered have ultimately contributed to his success. The father of two young kids, Vince also talks about how he and his wife, who has since left the airline world for fashion, make time for family while working full-time to grow their own brands in a new market. And of course we talk sneaker culture, from future trends and cutting-edge innovations that are driving the game forward to the dark world of resellers that are holding it back Vince talks about the powerful influence of footwear design on our culture and the responsibility that comes with that. Few people are as qualified to talk about this industry as Vince, so it's a real honor to have him on the show. It's been a pleasure to get to know Vince over time, and as it turns out, we're actually neighbors. I hope you enjoy this episode and take as much of it to heart as I have. So with that said, here is my interview with Vince Lebon. Vince! yeah welcome thanks mate <laughs> yeah uh, well, then again this is your this is your building not mine so uh welcome to your own apartment building <laughs> yeah cheers <laughs> i feel at <it laughs> home literally um although maybe i could say welcome to new york because i guess i've been here for longer than you have yeah uh you're not from here originally no that's right i'm from melbourne australia so long way away so i want to talk about uh Raleigh nation your company mm-hmm. obviously amongst other things but i know that the reason you came here was because of Rolly uh, yes you, blew up in, in Australia and now you know, US expansion. Tell me that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy story. I, I launched a brand back in 2012. Uh, I, I took a year out to really work on the business model. So I spent six months working on the business model, trying to understand you know, the market, competitors, where I wanted to position myself, and I had a few concepts. And then once I really sort of locked down what I was comfortable with, I worked on the design, the product side for another six months launched it in uh, April 2012. I essentially, you know, told the bank that I was uh, gonna renovate my house and uh, (laughs) use that money. I was gonna renovate my house just after, (laughs) you know, once I get the money back. And um, I I put it in shoes, we we bought 500 pairs of shoes and uh, we sold all 500 pairs in four weeks. Wow. Um, And then I picked up the world's largest shoe store as my first wholesale account there and it just really snowballed. It really took off um, pretty quickly actually.
0: Now that selling you know 500 pairs of shoes in four weeks is incredible. What actually, instead of me asking about the shoe in particular, tell me the story behind Roley. How did it come yeah. about?
1: So Rolly is uh, my wife's nickname um, and so she's a flight attendant and she used to travel around the world. Um, You know basically essentially shopping right because she'd she'd work she'd travel to la uh she'd get there and then she'd have two days to do whatever she wanted rest and then fly back and um so basically you know she was running around you know the australian dollar was at parity at the time so you know everything was super cheap and she'd just go out and she'd shop she'd explore the city and um she was just like she wanted to have a shoe that was like a bit more comfortable you know And it really got me thinking about how people travel and I thought, right, like why don't we create something that's super lightweight so it doesn't weigh your luggage down, but it's also extremely comfortable to explore the city and you can take as many pairs as you want, you know, and be comfortable. And that's really how the old concept sort of started. And
0: as a new brand, I mean, at the time that, you know, literally brand new, no one had heard of you and then to go and sell 500
1: pairs like that, did you have any, what was your, your marketing strategy? How did you even do that? Um, I mean, I think like when you're starting a brand, it's important to sort of look at, right, what happens if this doesn't work? Like, you know, because I had been in the industry for a while. Um, I knew I had outlets to go, right, if it doesn't work, I've got some friends that can help me out and I'll just start again. Mm-hmm. So taking that risk out, it was great because I was like, let's just go with what I believe in. Um, and, I, and like I said, I had worked on the model for a little while prior to even working on the product. Because I think it's much better to work on the model first and then create a product from that, as opposed to trying to fix a model to work around a product. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at brands, you know brands aren't created around a single product; they, they basically represent, you know, a lifestyle or a feeling or emotion. And so, um, you know, I looked at uh, how can I get in front of people and have a direct conversation and, and learn, test, and react. And so, a pop up just made a lot of sense. And you know. Five years ago in Australia, people weren't doing pop-ups. It was quite a very new concept. Um, the idea of having you know a shoe with a white sole was very foreign. Like, you know, hmm. it was it was just sneakers had white soles and that was it. Comfort fashion didn't have any of that. Um, and then also having a shoe that was super lightweight, like that lightweight trends also hadn't started. So like it was it was really great timing when you look back at it. At the time, it was very disruptive. Um, but it really did ride a trend and a wave over the last couple of years. In an interview, you mentioned the importance of creating a customer persona. Yeah, and
0: you know to design for a person in mind rather than for a type of person. Mm-hmm. And I found that interesting because for a lot of brands, it's like, you know, it's it's a type of person. When you talk about the demographic or the psychographic, you're you're going a lot more specific. Where did that? Yeah. Paradigm or mindset come from?
1: Um, so I was I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the Pencil Academy and the Pencil Academy really uh, elevated, I guess, my approach to design because prior to that, um, you know, I was like I said, working on, on the model, working on the branding, working on all that. But it it wasn't until I really locked down a persona where I literally a person like I know where she went to school, I know what she does for a living, I know her, you know parents her financial situation, her aspirations. All of that allows you to aim for her and if she's inspirational enough to other people, everybody else will follow suit. But you've really got to, I believe, um, and, you know, that's what a lot of these big brands are doing. You know, I've been fortunate enough to work with, um, you know, Foot and, and Adidas and Asics and, and they all have their muses, uh, they're laser focused and, you know, that's what we wanted to do. Now, when
0: we were introduced, I... Put two and two together, like literally walking on the way to meet you. That I knew you from a YouTube original series called Lace Up. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, I was I was stoked to meet you because your your team actually won the competition. Yeah. Um, tell me that story. Tell me about Lace Up. How did that come about? How did you get
1: involved? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> my life's been crazy over the last couple of years, but basically, uh, so I had launched Rolly. It was it was doing well. Uh, I think it was about three years in. And I got to the point where I felt like I was spending all my time running a business. Like, you know, I think anyone who's a designer that launches their own business, um, especially launches it by themselves. You know, I I didn't have any partners when I launched. You end up doing things that you just have to do. Like, you know, you're in the back office, you're speaking to customers, you're selling, you know, and so I was spending about uh, four days a season designing. So you're, you're looking at eight days, 10 days max, you know. And then you had obviously some overseas trips overlook products but it was very much around looking and streamlining the business and and so what happened is i got to a point where i wanted to take a design sabbatical i'm like i need to take myself out of this situation just reconnect as a designer and elevate you know and so i looked at i came across the design academy in pencil and uh, sneakers at that point i had not really done much work in the sneaker game uh, so I reached out to them, submitted, uh, and I didn't get in the first time actually. And I wrote to Dwayne Edmonds and was like, Hey, look, can you give me some feedback on why I didn't get in? Like, I actually think the sketch is pretty, like, it's pretty good actually. And I'd like to know what you didn't like about it or what can I improve on for the next time. And, um, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, he said, look, it was really great. Most people takes them three to four times. So don't give up. Just keep applying. You know, they have a lot of entries that go mm-hmm. through, you know, um and so the next time around there was a another one that was in january and i applied for that one too and i didn't really put enough time in and i put in a color materials board and a sketch and uh, once again i actually didn't get in so this is my second time like i've got a business that's working like what's going on here i really want to be a part of this and so what happened is on the on the third time that i applied Even though I had, I didn't look at it as I'm trying to get in. I changed my mindset completely. I was like, okay, this is no longer about whether I get accepted or not. This is about me taking the time out to improve. Mm -hmm. So when I had submitted the third, I was already working on the fourth, whether I found out if I got in or not. And I think that mental shift allowed, and that's when I got in. And it was like, it wasn't about the validation of pencil. It was about me looking at further developing. And so, you know, I got in and I found out why, you know i didn't get in the second time i think suzette uh, who's a color materials designer she said if anyone applies for sketch for a footwear designer and color materials i don't accept them because hmm. their heart isn't in color materials and that was a really interesting wow. uh take yeah and it was a you know it was a real blessing for me because color material design is um you know real focus for me because i think it's able to influence all aspects of design you can tell you know there's incredible storytelling um like you can think of the hottest sneakers and most people can think of like whack colorways, which makes the shoes look shit ass. And that's the power that color materials has, you know, but it's very hard to make an ugly shoe look good through colors and materials. Right. So it's like, it's, it's funny, you know, they, they all work together. And, um, so I, I, I got into pencil. I spent three weeks, um, doing a six and foot locker, uh, challenge, um, and those is all it's a scholarship you know which is great so you go in there they pay for everything and board and um it was it was great it allowed me to sort of step away from the business was the first time i'd spent three weeks away from the company um so
0: when you were applying to pencil you were applying for that ASIC scholarship
1: yeah okay yeah yeah so um yeah got that. i was fortunate enough to uh to win that it turns into a competition and uh normally you have three people unfortunately one of my guys had to get sent home uh, so we had two people. We had so much work to do. Like, we were just work until 2 a.m. every night. Um, and they basically drip feed you information so that you're just always on edge. They try to sort of replicate an intense working environment. So like, what were some things that they would do to um, ramp up the intensity? You know, it's just like, cool. To, today, you know, we got introduced to Footlocker's Lockers Muse and we got introduced to um, Asics Muse. And then you've got to create a muse based off those two. So you've got to find the synergies between the two companies. Then they're like cool we need nine concepts by the end of tonight um and then you're like cool now i need you to refine these three and you're pitching tomorrow and then i need you know 12 designs and 11 colorways you know the next day and it's just like wow. constant non-stop um but it's great i mean you learn things and then the, and the show you know the tv show was just another level i mean you got to think of these master classes are normally three weeks long We were doing that same amount of work and more because we didn't need to make physical prototypes for the for the show. We were doing that in four days and making an actual shoe, and then pitching to the celebrity. Like it was just, yeah, it was
0: out of control. You guys, um, obviously, you know, you won, but it was a team effort. There were three people. Yeah. How did you, I mean, I saw teams like self-destruct on that show. Yeah. How did you guys hold it together? What, I mean, because with something like design, it's it's so easy for everyone have, to have their
1: own strong opinion and, and sure. just be kind of steadfast on that. How did you guys make it work between three personalities? Yeah, look, I think uh, firstly, it's a show, right? So there's a lot of things that you don't see and they tell a narrative within the narrative. I mean, we had issues too, you know. I mean, they, to, granted, they weren't as big as some of the other groups or as visible. hmm Uh, And the great thing about our team is we were able to have issues and move on very quickly. Um, You know, it also helped that Dre and I had a very similar aesthetic and, you know, we got along really well. I mean, Z is a great designer and she's focused on innovation. And, um, you know, you get to points where you're under so much pressure that you can have a lot of... um, tension because you're trying to solve problems and you've got like very little time and we're dependent on that and so you're like come on let's make this work and we work together and and so yeah that created issues but like i said we we got through it very very you know quickly and professionally um i think maybe you know having my own company and running a team you know helps Mm -hmm. with that dynamics of just trying to bring everybody together um but we're all we were all very you know focused on just creating great work as opposed to winning we just kept winning but for us it was like you know there were weeks where we lost and it was actually one of our favorite projects like so it hmm. yeah it was important just to
0: do it for ourselves that brings me to an interesting point so you mentioned uh, you know sometimes you're you'll work you'll put your heart into something and you won't win yeah um, i'm sure there's the other side of the coin as well where sometimes where you have to work on something that you don't necessarily love you have your own work but you also work with brands mm-hmm. um, tell me about experiences of you know as a designer when you have to when you're being tasked with creating something that maybe on a overview level you don't necessarily
1: agree with but you have to do it anyway um like for me the design approach i take is like trying to understand uh what the consumer wants or who you're designing for right like are you solving problems so it's i very rarely look at it as you know i'm not i'm not designing for myself it's not whether i aesthetically like it or anything Mm. you know uh i think for me the only time it would become a real problem for me is it's Ethically, is this the right thing to be doing, right? But from an aesthetic point of view or anything like that, I don't get, I don't like to get too involved emotionally. Um, it's funny you mentioned ethically, like in terms of you know a
0: company, because mm. like something I noticed recently. This is totally off topic, but you just made me think of this. Is how I'm sure you've noticed, uh, you know, or I've heard Instagram changed up their their algorithm recently. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they they moved away from non chronological a long time ago anyway. But now it's like you know, if you don't have a certain number of comments on a post or a certain amount of characters within those comments and mm-hmm. likes on those comments, your post gets seen by something like 4 to 10% of your audience. Yeah, it's crazy. And you know, in my view, what this is doing, I think it's an, it's not an ethical move from Instagram because sure. we've already got this problem of everyone on their phones all day long and like, you know, craning their necks down, staring at their phones, having all kinds of back problems. Yeah. And now it's like, you actually you are being required to check your phone more times and use your phone more in order to get just the kind of exposure and engagement you were getting mm-hmm. normally before. Yeah. Um, you know, something like that, you can view it as a business move and you can view it as a revenue move or advertising, whatever it is, or impressions. But I, I don't think companies always zoom out and look at like what is this change actually going to do to our culture and our society? Yeah. Does that play into how does that play into sneakers? I mean, you know, you could talk about um, you know, making people faster and stronger and things like that. But then again, um you know, like, I forgot the statistic, but a massive amount of Americans have, like, foot problems and back problems. Yeah. Does that factor in or is it is it mostly just, like, fashion?
1: Look, it depends where you, you know, who you're working with or where you're working. You know, a you know, company like Adidas and, and Nike, they're predominantly performance-based. Mm-hmm. So they're looking to solve problems with a performance lens. Um, you know, with sneakers, you've got uh, sort of... You've got your performance and then you have your cultural relevance. So they're like the way I sort of see the two Mm -hmm. worlds. Um, It just matters which game you're in and which way you're trying to, um, you know, have a voice in. Um, You know, from an ethical point of view, I mean, companies have tried really hard. You know, I remember, you know, years ago when kids were dying from, you know, J's getting stolen off their feet, you know, and they tried to find ways to really solve that problem. Uh, And you don't really hear those stories now um you know probably cuz the products more accessible and and um and it's not as it's not on a pedestal as high as it used to be i mean i think the challenge now is how do you get sneakers in the right people's hands or feet you know i think it's so about so much about hype now that um you know resellers are just over everything and and the people who really want the shoes, like, you know, a lot of these shoes is just super expensive, you know, like it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time, I mean, they come out in limited, and when they're not expensive, they come out in super limited drops and, you know, you've got to fight bots or you've got to fight lines that people have been paid to line, to line up in for three days. And there's a real unbalance uh, with real sneaker fans and the economy itself of the sneaker world. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, um, resellers
0: and things like that. That's always been that's always been there on some level. But I think with you know social media um, and you know brands sort of tapping into that, um, finding those those hype beasts <laughs> through all the you know different networks. I feel like it's it's just intensified it. I mean, that's an interesting topic. Like, how do you sort of view like the the sneaker like hype scene right now?
1: The, the thing is now with social media is it's you know even though the um, the reselling has always been there, right? Without social media, those guys didn't know really what to cop, right? Because right. you had to be in it to really know. So the problem with social media now is everybody knows what the next hype drop's going to be. Right. So they don't have to educate themselves. Uh, they just have to go and line up and get people and pay people to stay on those lines. Whereas before, you know, it was work even finding out where that, what the next hype shoe was going to be and where to get it. Um, so the product's a little bit, you know, it's too expensive and too accessible um, to resellers, I think. The information, not so much the product, like I said, they come out in limited drops, and that's why, you know, like a pair of off-whites, like, you know, I was fortunate enough to get the J1s, and um, they came out super limited, and before I had them in my hands, you know, they were worth $1,300. Well, You know, it's like, and that's it, you can't get them anymore. So it's great it's yeah
0: I mean that's gotta be the the other side of that the positive side i guess is as a designer that has to be exciting because you see how a shoe can become you know iconic just yeah. based off hype right and based off like a drop just so well timed and well managed um so yeah it's I guess there's a lot of opportunity on the other side of it um but yeah, there is definitely. you know it does create you know confusion and for the consumer and you know, like, and it can be upsetting, right? You you see some people in line in front of you and none of them even really know, like, what the shoe's about. They just know what the price tag is and how they're going to resell it. Yeah. That's got to suck.
1: And I think, like, as from a designer point of view, the thing that's sort of challenging is a lot of the hype shoes now are really backed by huge influencers. So it's not so much whether shoes are dope. It's because they have such a huge reach that so many people want it and it creates the need, you know. Mm-hmm. Although the great thing is, you know, Virgil's doing his thing. Shoes look incredible. And, uh, you know, and I think if you're, and even, you know, a lot of the Pharrell stuff that's been dropped your um, Yeezy's, I think they're so big because they also, they look good too, you know, but it's, it'll be nice to see, you know, some independent footwear designers come through the game and like have that same sort of impact.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask you about, I want to go back to Lace Up again really quick mm-hmm. because, To sort of cap off, to end that thought, um, for the final challenge, you guys had to design a shoe for James Harden. Yeah. And ultimately, he ended up picking the shoe that your team designed. Yeah. But it wasn't just based off the design of the shoe. He actually played a game in those shoes. Yeah. um, At least one game. Mm -hmm. What was it like designing a shoe, not just for someone as fashion forward as James Harden to sort of say, yeah, it looks cool, but also for him to actually perform it? I mean, was there a side of you that was like, Oh my God, he's gonna he's gonna roll his ankle in these <laughs> shoes, and I'm gonna get sued. Or you know, I'm I'm sure that wasn't part of it. But like, what was that like? Because I mean, that has to be pressure.
1: Yeah, I mean, out of all the challenges, that's the one that like felt like okay, now it's game time. Like everything else, even though it was very hard and you know there's a lot of work in it, and we put a lot of heart and soul. It wasn't until James Harden like okay, this this ain't a game anymore. This is the real deal. Like we're designing for one of the best NBA players in the league right now. Um and if you watch the games he's been playing lately, I mean, he's, it's ridiculous. This guy's like one of the best I've seen. And, it's uh, got to be the shoes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, we definitely had, you know, the the lens of looking at it and saying, how is this going to perform? How can we add uh, to his performance of the shoe? You know, it wasn't just about coming up with a cool design. No way. It was about looking at the one, look, you know, and saying, right, what can we do to make this shoe better? How can we reinvent it? Um and, you know, the, I guess the pressure, uh, you know, you you want him to perform in it. You know, you hope he's dropping a 60-point game in those shoes. I mean, that you know, I grew up watching basketball. I mean, that changes your life. So, um, and when when I met him and we, we delivered the shoes, I mean, that was an incredible experience when he put the shoes on. Like, you know, I've had shoes sold in, you know, big department stores and stuff, but it was very different to see, you know, an, an athlete trying on your shoe in front of you, like fanning out saying you know wow. he, was, he was really enjoying it he wanted to rock those shoes immediately but uh, the show was gonna air for a couple months so he couldn't wear them oh man that's that's so difficult yeah yeah that's that's awesome and
0: I mean you guys you know you created the shoe around his personality so there were like yeah. elements of his personality in the shoes so I'm sure he was geeking out yeah um, it's cool over that so you, as part of winning the show you um, basically were given the opportunity to work with Adidas hmm and I know you, uh, you know you work here in, in Brooklyn, where we are right now, yes. and this morning I was actually at a different company, Nike headquarters, running with a friend of mine, Gerald, who I, I guess is a mutual friend of ours, uh, yeah. as I found out yeah, before we legend. started recording, <laughs> uh, Gerald Flores from Soul, Soul Collector, and I'm under strict instructions to get <laughs> as much information out of you as possible about the farm, the Brooklyn creator farm. The Brooklyn secret farm. Tell me about this, this magical,
1: mythical place. Oh, Yeah yeah look, I'll try and say as much as I can about that space um but you know it's a it's like an innovation cultural hub for the brand you know um I work under Mark Dolce directly and sort of um you know I guess the three of the guys in particular i mean mark mark and Dennis you know the the goal is to stay closer to the community and to the culture and you know look at what's happening on the streets you know, be inspired by the city, um and, you know, set the direction for the company from a product, you know, point of view. I mean, when I say set direction, it's like literally just coming up with concepts and ideas. Like what we work on is not about creating products to go to market. It's about inspiring the B U, you know, the inline designers to look at it and go, Wow, that's so cool. I could do this and build a whole story around that or I've never thought about that, you know, can we, can we explore that more? And the Brooklyn farm basically takes around, uh, you know, somewhere between, I think it's 15 and 30 people from Portland and Germany and brings them here on a rotational basis. Oh, wow. So it allows them to get out of their space and, um, to just explore, you know. That's awesome. So
0: now you guys work quite far ahead. I know. Um, how far ahead really do you work? How far ahead can you work in in the sneaker industry? Uh,
1: We're working on 2020 product now. Okay. um, And some Olympic stuff. Wow. Now,
0: I'm curious about how you forecast for that because, you know, when you're thinking not even like colors, I mean, just, you know, shapes, silhouettes, um, you know, we've seen so many trends um, kind of going to minimalism, maximalism. How are you forecasting what's going to be cool then? Or is it the opposite and it's like we're going to try and set this trend?
1: Yeah, we're definitely, you know, it's hard to look at what 2020 is and follow a trend because then you're probably behind anyway. Like we're looking at what's happening now and where do we think, you know, consumerism uh, needs to be, you know, um, you know what does the culture expect from us, you know, and and from a performance point of view, like looking at the um, technology we have now and saying, right, what can we do with the, today's technology really push the limits um to deliver something you know because 2020 i mean that's not too far out although it seems like it is Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of work that has to go into getting product delivered at that time
0: i mean i know from just working in magazines forever where you're if you're in print you're working always i mean three months ahead is the minimum i mean you're working five six seven months ahead yeah uh and it's funny because often you find yourself like you know putting on like shorts in winter and you're like oh no damn my, my head's been in the summer issue like <laughs> yeah. you know for the last few weeks um it's funny like you get caught up in the future more than the present uh, does sure. do you find any of that sort of happening to you i mean like twenty, uh, like you're working in 2020 in your head but
1: you're, you're living in completely. 2018 i mean by the time my product drops i'm so over it that so over like, it. you've just seen it for like two years yeah 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 and it's it's not that i don't appreciate it anymore but it's like well and truly thinking about you know the next two years and mm-hmm being in that space. So on the one hand, you're thinking about the next 20 years
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> or the next, oh, sorry, the next two years, uh, hopefully the next 20 years for Adidas. Yeah. Um, but you also still have your own business going on the side. Yeah. How do you keep those things separate? Are you, um, do you consciously try and inform one with the other and vice versa, or is it more like very separate? How, and if so, how do you maintain that barrier in your head and be creative in one way on one brand and be mm-hmm. creative in another way, a very different way on a different yeah. brand?
1: Well, for me, I find it um, pretty easy. I mean, because they're they're different categories, right? One's performance-based and the other one is um, fashion, casual fashion. So, it's more function, Mm community-based, right? Um, And like I said, I always design with a consumer or persona in mind. So, for me, it's like how you deal with two different friends, right? Like you're not going to have those those same sort of conversations. You've really got to tailor Mm -hmm. yourself or... um, for that situation so i just go in you know with adidas i'm always thinking about performance thinking about how we can look at the machines there's a maker lab in in the brooklyn farm so i just go in there and literally just start making stuff you know so you can actually make a shoe concept right there it's expected i mean that's what we do like you know we'll finish a day and uh yeah a new sample at the end of the day you know you're turning stuff around really quickly so every day you're turning a new sneaker around pretty much yeah holy
0: shit, that is cool and i'm assuming all of these sneaker designs are just like top secret don't leave the farm
1: completely yeah i mean to be fair i think i mean mark said we could share them but i've never felt comfortable enough sharing anything um you know it's it's adidas's ip um you know i'm there to try to collaborate and work with the skills and with the technology there and you know i'm not really trying to build my own um brand out from from being at the brooklyn farm you know i'm blessed to be a part of it you know it's an incredible space and so i just want to help help grow it well actually This morning, my buddy,
0: uh, Brendan Dunn from Sneaker News told me that if you can show him any unreleased designs, then you can be on his show on Sneaker News. Oh, really? Okay, cool. All right, I might bring something out. Ruffle through the papers, then I'll connect you guys. (laughs) So I want to know about your creative process. Like when you, you know, you've got a brief, uh, maybe you've gotten a brief from Adidas or you just want to create something new for Rolly, like it's time.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you get in that that headspace? Yeah. When it's time to sit down and work? It's really like, uh, I've been doing, you know, design for almost 15 years now so um and i've had so many different approaches to it like because i I can i sketch i do some 3d design you know do a lot in photoshop or illustrator um and then there's the physical making because i can physically make shoes also so it really depends on how i'm feeling and and um or looking at the brief and just saying right does this brief require a more relaxed exploration approach or does it require a heavy performance space where you're looking at solving issues? And um, yeah, I was about to tell you a secret project that I was working on. (laughs) No, it's not. When it comes back to you,
0: uh, just just go for it. But um, are there like any things that, and like specific, you know, practical things that you do that you find help your creativity? Like maybe it's, um, you know, maybe you work better like late at night or do you have a morning routine or just little things that you feel make you more creative and allow that process to sort of flow.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am a, I work at, I work quite late. Uh, I find that it helps me sort of retain a lot of the information actually, you know, being able to do what I'm doing and then go to sleep. I think the body stores that information a lot easier. Um, I normally when I, when I wake up, you know, I have, I mean, I try to have breakfast every day. I know it's a super important thing, but, you know, now living in Brooklyn, it's great because I get to walk to work and really decompress and process sort of what I want to achieve for the day or for the week. Uh, when I get in, I generally look at, um, you know, RSS feeds uh, for the for probably 30 minutes, just like just take in what's happening around. Uh, not necessarily only the sneak industry. I look at architecture, you know, art, um, just pop culture, those sorts of things, just to sort of see what's happening. Um, and then I switch off from that and then get to work. What's know?
0: like the most unusual source of inspiration you've ever had?
1: Oh, that's a real hard question because, you know, I it's so cliche, but I take inspiration from everything. Like I really do. Like, you know, I mean, looking outside of this view now, you know, I look at the steel structures and the bridge and be like, cool, I'd create a great outsole from that with that pop of color from the red, you know, like, you just you can find inspiration in everything. Um and like I said, I, I try not to look at the full industry itself. Mm-hmm. I try to look outside of it. Um But I think probably the weirdest point of inspiration is maybe take inspiration from a feeling, like a moment of joy where you know you've achieved something and you go, Wow, I want to design now and working off that I think mm-hmm. is really cool. Um as opposed to something that you've visually seen and, and sort of reinterpreting, I think I like taking inspiration from things that aren't so tangible. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then, of course, you zoom out and then you see brands that clearly are you know, reacting to other mm. brands. Right. Um, like something is just such a runaway hit. I mean, like we, we talk about a lot of brands, but, you know, I don't think anyone can look at anyone who knows sneakers can look at the new Nike Epic React, which I love. Yeah. And tell me that that wasn't designed specifically to take out the boost. Yeah, of course. I mean, the boost is one of the most successful performance shoes editors has ever had. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it was so successful because it's it's a great shoe for running, but I mean it's an amazing shoe just for like walking around and the, yeah. the, the colorways are so diverse and versatile that it just worked so well. Um yeah, and like I said, I love the React, I'm actually wearing them right now. <laughs> but I mean how realistic is that? Like are there these you know meetings happening where it's like these guys killed it with this shoe? Like we've got it, like clearly this is a thing. We need to sort of like take some of that
1: market share. Um so like with roly i'll start with roly with roly uh that whole shoe was developed from scratch mm-hmm. so we i didn't buy an original sample to copy the last and alter it no like i literally worked with the factory and made our own last shape made our own outsole shape so everything there even though the shoes look is super simple because it's simple every single component needs to be considered mm-hmm. right like if that's three mil out you know it looks off because it's so simple so and like, I've had multiple brands try to copy us in, especially in Australia and New Zealand, like there's so many knockoffs now that it's, it's disappointing, you know, um, cause a lot of them are really big brands that are biting, you know, biting my style because <laughs> it's working so well. Um, but you know, people are buying into the brand cause it's the, the branding of what it represents, right? Like you could buy fake converse anywhere, mm-hmm. but people don't rock them. Right. Like, so I think that if you are designing product, that's authentic and speaks directly to the community people are going to support you regardless right so those people that copy you those shoes or those products are just not relevant enough um and they're always going to be behind eight ball when it comes to uh, you know adidas like you we never say the word nike in the space ever so it's like um, voldemort (laughs) yeah it's just you know and because i mean particularly the brooklyn farm like we're talking 20 in 2020 like how can you design on something that's in the marketplace now when you're really truly thinking about two mm-hmm. years ahead? So you're not really looking at what's in the marketplace now. you're really looking at what can what technologies do we have now that we can release within two years? Because the problem with the two-year time frame is um, it's very hard to work on it, like straight up innovation um, within a two-year time frame. Innovations more you know five to 10.
0: Five to ten years, yeah. But also, you've got. I mean, you could design a shoe now for twenty twenty, and then by the time you're halfway through twenty nineteen, I mean, there's like an amazing new fabric that you know performance blend that would have been great, but
1: you know, you designed two years ago. Exactly, it's hard to get it out and into the market quick enough. I mean, I think if you've got, you know, when it comes to material science, you know. If it's commercialized already, you can introduce them into existing silhouettes or silhouettes that are coming through, and that's pretty easy. But, um, you know, I think the way that Adidas is heading now, it's pretty, you know, exciting. You know, when you look at, you know, speed factories and the 4D outsole by carbon, um, that's going to change the way we design and the way consumers buy. You see a lot
0: of the smaller upcoming brands now really focusing on things like, you know, sustainability and and stuff like that. Is there are those conversations that are happening within, you know, the larger the, the Titans like Adidas?
1: Yeah, 100. percent I mean, that was very surprising for me coming through and spending a lot of time with these guys. I really didn't uh, know that they were spending a lot of time in that space. I mean, I, I don't think they're um, communicating it as well to the consumers uh, as they should. Because, and I think they're working on that. And but I see where the the conversations they're having now internally, and that's going to be you know brought out into through product and through you know marketing channels um but yeah they definitely focus on sustainability cool
0: exciting okay so we've talked you know you you won lace up you won the competition right before that um you've got your own great brand you're working in the deals how the hell did you get into this industry like i mean does it seems like you're a natural at it was it something that just always felt like this was what you were going to do or what was the story there
1: yeah, I mean, like growing up, I used to play basketball every day. Me and my brother used to hit the street ball courts and uh, and play. So we were always obsessed. We got our first Jordans. Uh, we got the Jordan 12s as our first shoes. Yeah, so we got our first Jordans like when we were probably, I don't know, 13 years old. And that just, I remember that moment clearly. I mean, me and my brother had the, you know, the red and the blacks, like the flu games. And we wore them everywhere together. We were like twins, you know. And it just created that real emotional connection to sneakers, and at that point, I didn't think I was going to be in the sneaker game. You know, I just had a, an appreciation for them that they were very hard to buy in Australia. What did you think you were ultimately going to go into? So, I originally um, was a math science student and um, my mom wanted me to be a doctor. And I got to year 11 and I was in maths, you know, advanced maths and science and was doing well. And one day I woke up and I'm like, I do not want to do this. I'm not living. That's not my vision right for where i want to be and so i literally changed all my subjects to art-based subjects and i was i was doing one art subject prior to that but i switched everything to art my mom nearly had a heart attack and i sort of at that point i realized like if you could do anything in this world if you're really good at it Mm -hmm. like when you think about how some people make their money like it's it's crazy like you just got to find something that other people want and need and add value to people's lives and people were willing to pay for it yeah and so i transitioned into um website you know i did i was a multi trained multimedia designer so um i was fortunate enough to i finished school and went straight into a postgraduate degree so i skipped i was meant to have done a degree and 2 years industry experience before getting into this course so wow. i was like i was 17 and everybody else was there was one other guy like me but then there was everyone else was 28 years old or older and uh, so yeah my learning just absolutely skyrocketed in in that time frame and just being able to interact with all the people and um i got a job at a i tried to get a job as a graphic designer multimedia designer and i couldn't get a job because i had no industry experience even though i had this incredible certification and so i ended up getting a job at a shoe company as their multimedia designer and so i spent six months there um you know, as a multimedia designer, I said they were doing you know brochures in Microsoft Word or something at the time, and I'm like, no, like this needs to be done properly using InDesign, mm-hmm. using professional grade, you know, platforms. And then uh, at six months in, I saw my my boss was, um, you know, he'd he'd go and design a shoe, and he'd send a sketch to a factory, it'd come back, he'd make changes, three mil here, change that, go back, another sample, come back a month later. And this would happen four or five times and I just saw this opportunity to go, you know, his name was David. I'm like, David, why don't we just design this on Photoshop, get it to a point where you're exactly happy with it, make it look photorealistic so the factory actually knows what it's meant to look like and has all the specs. And so we went from turning samples around from, you know, originally it was four to five samples to just one go, you know. And it so increased efficiency, save cost. We were wow. getting what we wanted because you know, a lot of the time he thought he wanted something. It wasn't until it came back like that where he's like, "Oh no, that's, that doesn't look right. Let's change this, mm-hmm. move this." And so um, that really helped um, speed up the development process. And and that's when I started getting interested in product design. And then I designed my first collection uh, online uh, through sorry on Photoshop. Um <laughs> we sold three thousand pairs of it just from designer a photo. Designercollection.com. <laughs> yeah. It was like we literally didn't even make a sample. The photo looked so realistic that wow. we sold it from a photo, sold three thousand pairs. Amazing. Which was huge then. And um I said to my, my boss at the time, I said, Look, I'm a trained designer, you know, multimedia designer. Um I'm not I don't wanna be a multimedia designer here, like I wanna work at a studio or I'd like to get involved in the product side. So he said, "Why don't you um, come shadow me?" So I basically became like the two IC next to him and traveled around the world doing all the trade shows, factory oh. visits. I did that for five years. It was like the best experience. Man, it was incredible. So I did that. Um, learned a lot. You know, I owe a lot to him. Uh, and then I actually got a, a partnership with a Chinese trading company. And so then I worked in the. I basically ran a sample. Uh, development room for had about 100, 150 workers um, we were just making turning out 400 shoes a season wow. um and so those those years really set me up for yeah sounds like it where i am today so for an like an up-and-coming designer maybe it's someone
0: who's just like you know studying it or just getting out of uh, you know school if they don't have um you know they don't get approached by youtube to be on, <laughs> on a <laughs> nationally syndicated show um mm-hmm. What's a good way, like, what's a good platform? Because, like, you know, for writers, it's easy, like, with WordPress. And, yeah. you know, for a podcast, you can go up on SoundCloud. What What would, like, a sneaker designer, and really you could you could extend this to, like, apparel design yeah, in general. Right. Um, how do they get heard?
1: Well, I think for sneaker design in particular, because, uh, I mean, that's the road I've taken. I've done some apparel stuff in the past. But for sneaker design, I think that it's a hard industry to get into. But at the same time, there's things that can get you noticed very quickly. And pencil is one of those pencil i mean the amount of people they've put into the workforce is is incredible Mm -hmm. and what you learn to get in there is you know once you're in there is also you know it's, it's this guy ran the jordan brand for 12 years and suzette is one of the best material people i've ever met in my life um and you know she was the first color materials designer at nike um and these are the people that are mentoring you and and if you you know are genuine and you You really care about adding value to the pencil community too. Like you've got friends for life um, and a mentors for life, you know. So that was, that by far was the most influential thing for me in terms of sneaker design. Um, In terms of shoe design in general, I mean, there's lots of workshops. There's a lot of online resources now. Just get out there and get your hands dirty. Like just make shit. Go buy shoes, cut it up, sole swap, customs, do customs. You know, Uh,
0: so you bring up a good point Uh, we mentioned before, you know, really very big in Australia, Uh, it's ubiquitous over there. Um, That's where actually most of my family lives. Right. And, you know, to then move to New York City to bring the brand to life over here. What's that like? Because is it humbling? I mean, over there, like you're the shit (laughs) and you come over and, you know, you're, you still have the same shoes, like still the same great product, but people just don't know who you are or don't know the brand yet. Yeah. What's, what's that like to sort of start again, essentially, um, obviously with a much clearer vision of where to go because you've done it already. Um, but at the same time, you know, having to kind of
1: go to people knowing that they have no idea who you are yeah i mean it's very very humbling i think it's um you know i left australia because i felt we uh, the growth that i could have achieved over the last couple of years could have been done without me you know i could put a team in place without diversifying and really disrupting the current model um i could i could have you know i've got a great gm in i've got a great team and you know i speak to them every day still they can run that and so i wanted to challenge myself take myself out of the comfort zone come here much bigger market but you're right like people don't care you know, if you're big in Australia, people don't give a shit. Like, you know, they prob they probably care a little bit my about the Instagram following. You know, that validates things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really about, cool. What are you gonna do here? And uh, the platform here in the in in New York in particular, it's it's very challenging for you know independent brands because everything's super expensive. Um, everyone's overstimulated. You know, trying to get attention is really tough here. Um, Are there some things that you've found have worked? You know, I think like yeah, by trial yeah, and error for sure. I mean, we did a collaboration with James Goldcrown and we did a street mural um, on Berry in Williamsburg. I think it's like Berry and Fourth. Um, and like we put I put up uh, twenty five pairs of blank white shoes in a love heart shape because he does those love heart murals around around the city or around around all of us actually. And so we put those on there and he literally spray painted like these love hearts all over him. And it was crazy to see the amount of uh, people that were stopping and checking it out and taking photos It got covered by um, the Brooklyn, you know, news network. And hmm. that was the time where I was like, wow, like we're going to do something pretty big here. Like this, this feels really special. That was like a
0: very social media sort of heavy campaign. Cause obviously yeah. you had people sort of like walking by taking photos, posting it. Yeah. How, one thing businesses always struggle with is measuring, you know, the ROI from something from like, call it a stunt like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But although in your case, really, it was a a genuine
1: collab as well.
0: Um, Do you have a way of measuring the impact of social? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get dashboards. So one of the important things of moving here and still having to control, you know, the Australian business or at least monitoring the Australian businesses, every one of my key players does dashboards for me. So I'm very numbers focused, you know, I can see you know, and that's really just make sure everything's going okay. Just look at trends, look at opportunities, look at things that aren't working, look at risks, mitigation. Um, and so, from a social media point of view, we have that you know very similar outlook. Um, it's something that we're now going to focus a lot more on. You know, um, I think you know just gifting out shoes to influencers and all that. Like, if it's not done you know authentically, and it just doesn't cut through. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it feels very fake. Um, but for me, you know, as in that startup mode, the the hardest thing about being in startup again, and that's what I feel like being here, is um, you have very different approaches to growing a business when you're established and when you're new. You know, when you're new, there's so many things that you sh- should be doing, but you just don't have the time. So it's about understanding what's the number one priority to then keep your business moving forward so you can um, grow and bring in people that can do the things that you need, you know, instead of spending three hundred thousand dollars and hoping that it works in a couple months.
0: Were you one of those business owners you just mentioned in the beginning? Can't figure out what, what to do first.
1: Yeah, created my own little sort of dashboard and put uh, segments into, you know, wholesale, online, marketing, um, and really it just broke down every channel and looked at right. What does a win look like in each one of these spaces, and which one is going to have the biggest impact? with short-term growth, but also with a long-term benefit, right? So I was essentially looking at low-hanging fruit, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what you want to do at the very beginning to build momentum, to then look at the things that are going to create long, sustainable growth. Um, You know, so collaborations was one of the things that I was looking at focusing on the beginning. Um, Problem with collaborations is, you know, you've got to, it takes a lot of work. To get them right you know you've got to really manage the other person's expectations um, you're working with their timelines um, and coming to a new city like everything is new to you like you know you take so many things for granted by when you come to a new city like you know where do you gonna find a photographer now you got to go and validate you know find 10 photographers and hope that one of them wants to work with you you know, just where do I hire a car to go and transport things? You know, where do I get a scissor lift for for the mural? You know, where, which where do I even get a mural from? What are the city permits like? Uh, where do I find good staff? You know, like there's just always something that you're learning in a new city. That you know, when you're when you're starting a a company in your own city, you just already know you're or you at least know people who have the answer for you. So that's the hardest challenge coming into a, a city like this.
0: So. Something that you know, I really try to do with every episode of this podcast, and you might have noticed it, is the things we're talking about are really universal, right? So these are themes, time management, um, you know, scaling a business. These are things that work and apply to you as a sneaker designer uh, and business owner, but it could be someone who owns you know, a bakery or is starting up a running club. What's your favorite tool that you've picked up that you find works and has helped you in business but can be applied to other ventures?
1: Yeah. So like, I'm very big on productivity. Um, you know, I've got a few things that I do. Um, one of the things that I try to implement and I've been doing this for like, you know, the last uh, almost 10 years actually, which really helped a lot is if something takes less than 15 minutes, just do it. Like if you get that email and it's going to take you, you know, really quick time to just go and reply and send and move on. Like it just helps you not get clogged down with so much crap. Um, I also, I, I, I use Asana um, um, as my main sort of task management platform. Asana, what, what Asana, is Asana, it's like a, just, just a task, online task management, oh, management cool. platform. It's like Torello and all of those. Okay, so you, you use that like daily? That's Yeah, to... that's daily. So basically what I'll do is um, I'll go through my emails really quickly and pick out the things that need to be done today, um, anything like that. You know, can be done within, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes. And when I say 10, 15 minutes, sometimes it's even like, if you can dump it, it'd be done in five minutes. Cool. Just, just smash it out as I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, I put it all into Asana and I literally just move all the tasks around to prioritize them and then pull three aside for today hmm. and go, right. At the end of today, this is a win. If I can finish these three things and that's the most important things for me right now, like everything else can wait, smash them through, and then go on to the next thing, you know, and the whole thing around like doing everything that I can within that's five, you know, for 15 minutes. Because like if you did 10 things, you know, that's like, you know, a little over an hour of your time and it's done. Right. And it keeps other people moving. Like by you not like holding on to withholding information, you're probably stopping somebody else from progressing. And, you know, as an employee, you can have that mindset. But as a business owner, you don't want people waiting on you you want Cause them because you're, you're paying for it yeah it's they're not being productive they're losing interest they're making mistakes or things are getting delayed and so i try to set i only look at emails uh twice a day so in the morning and after lunch and i just do the same thing check over everything prioritize my day um But yeah, I find that the the top three, I call them, top three uh, things I want to achieve. I have a top three for the week and I have a top three for the day. That's really smart. So to make sure that they're aligned because you could very easily just do the things that you can be very reactive and that's not where you want to be. You know, you want to be, you know, I'm working on these areas of the business this week. Is everything that I'm doing challenging back to that and are we moving forward?
0: Was it difficult for you as a creative to learn how to delegate work onto other
1: people? Um, It wasn't difficult, but there's a learning curve that comes with it in a way of uh, you've just got to accept that things aren't going to be at the same level, you know, as you would like them to be. Um, But then you also have to also set a standard. So there's a fine balance between, you know, being a designer, like sometimes you can look at you know, the way people create a flyer or a brochure or something, and you're like, come on, like, you could have done it, you know, and like, but it's like, are you really adding any value by stepping in somebody's toes and making them feel incompetent to be able to send out something that has great content and adds a lot of value to whoever they're sending it to? Like,
0: So what would your approach be if, and this is probably something you've dealt with before, if you've delegated something to someone and they're just, they're not quite getting, not quite giving you what you are asking for? Um, you know, you don't want to let this person go, but you yeah. want to sort of get through the
1: situation. How do you deal with that? I try to sort of create a framework for them to work from that I know that this is what I'm comfortable with, right? Like these are the things visually that will work. These, this is the copy that I'm, you know, that I'm already comfortable with. These are the keywords. This is the context. This is the tone um, that Roly needs to embody. And as long as they're within that, um, you know that I'm going to be 90% happy with it already. So it gives them the confidence to go, okay, cool. I can just, you know, smash this out. And I know that this is what Vince likes. And and then over time, it gets oh, yeah. refined and developed together. Um, as opposed to them starting from nothing and not really knowing, you know, trying to get into your head. It's frustrating for them and frustrating for, for me. <laughs> so. Yeah, I
0: mean, I think the delegation can be viewed and probably is viewed by most people as like, I don't have time for this. I need to give this, I need to push this off my plate to someone else. Yeah. Um, and I think a, maybe I don't want to say smarter, but a different way of looking at it is giving a task to someone to empower them to be able to do it and delegating at least initially should be actually more work than less work yeah. ironically, because you really need to put the extra time in to make sure they, they've got for it on sure. lock, but ultimately it pays dividends once they do have it and then can just sort of, Go for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, like I said, and I, you know, when I was talking about the startup versus a mature business and how different they are in the business needs, when I first started a Roley, I was working till 2 o'clock every single night, you know, really, genuinely. When I got to my third year, I decided, right, now I'm hiring more people. I know what the business needs. I've set a lot of the infrastructure up. Now I'm going to start bringing in people, delegating a lot more, with these frameworks um and so what had the, the business just like essentially skyrocketed right and um what that allowed me to do was step back and look at the business from a holistic approach as opposed to being so caught up in it and we were much better we were like doing we're killing it not and it's because i wasn't actually in the trenches doing everything that i could possibly do now i was like setting the guys up and inspiring them to do what I needed to do and even doing more than what i had even envisioned. Because if you're there doing 20 different roles, if you have 20 competent people, they're gonna give you a much better quality of work, right? So you just got, we got the business to a point where, and the the thing is like the people that, you know, my view on on staffing is uh, people that you bring into the company should never be, they should never cost you money. Because if they they are they're not it's the wrong person or you've created the wrong role because everybody that comes in the business should be taking it to the next level and you know adding value like i try to link everybody to a revenue line um, so that you know it's easy to look at their return on investment right
0: um yeah that's it's a great point uh, i think it's uh, often people are so insulated within you know in the inner workings of an organization that Ultimately, what they're doing and what everyone's doing is, you know, contributing to the bottom line. But yeah. it's not always in a direct way. In fact, it's often in a very indirect way, like a couple yeah. of degrees of separation. Completely. And I think for, those, for people in those roles, and I've been in roles like that, it can be very hard to motivate sometimes because you're making a steady salary. Um, whether you go in and kick ass and take names or totally phone it in. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, it's the same ultimately, like, you know, you can't do that every day, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you get what I mean? Like, as opposed to if you are working for yourself or you're, you're a business owner and you literally see like a sale and that bottom line number go up. Yeah. Um, that motivates you, you know, it becomes a sport almost. It's like putting points on the board.
1: For sure. And then, you know, and the people, you know, employees, they need to see that they need to understand that, um, their job directly relates to a revenue line and they need to be able to monitor it and see it, you know, not from a, KPI perspective, but from just the overview of understanding how business works and the value that they're adding, because um, that can be a real challenge for people. Like empowering staff is so important; like they really need to feel like they're adding value to the company and and see that growth and understand where it comes from and why it's you know, um, yeah, just. the the, the dashboards that we do is like really change the culture of the company for us you know what's like the
0: main information on there like what is so game-changing about the dashboards
1: so every dashboard is created around a people, a certain person's role so they they're all very different like the marketing dashboard versus the online dashboard versus the wholesale and customer experience and warehouse right they're the main categories of dashboards that we have so my uh, challenge to everybody, you know, I allowed them to create the dashboard, but I had to approve it, and we refined it over time. So you know, it probably takes maybe um, two months to really get it to a point where you're really happy with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, my whole thing was, don't present me data for the sake of showing me data. That's the biggest fault, right? Like a lot of companies who create dashboards or do KPI performance reviews are giving you data just to validate that they're working. I do not want to see that whatsoever i want to see data that's going to allow you to make better decisions or to see trends so you know do you
0: guys focus more on like findings like are there you know like headlines on each one or like you know standout trends from the month or or things like that yeah so you don't have to sift through all the you know data for the sake of it
1: yeah so um uh, they do them weekly so you are able to retain that information and, Mm -hmm. and look at trends so if you look at the online one as an example um you know, it has all our top five bestsellers, it has the rockstar products from a conversion rate, it has the products that have the worst conversion rates. So a lot of people going to them, not converting. So you try to understand why. Mm. You look at um, the revenue drop from last week. So the products that were working really well last week where they haven't converted this week. You look at the dollars, you look at the stock holdings they have, you look at where they sit from a category perspective on the category page. Mm. Uh, We look at all the um, traffic sources of where it's all coming from. Like, you know, we have automated email campaigns too. So we look at every single channel and see how they're performing. And if we do uh, A-B testing on it and we see which one performs better, um, you know, like this site, that's just online, you know. Uh, Then you have, you know, one like uh, customer experience where, you know, you think, well, how do you manage customer experience from a dashboard point of view? Like a lot of people just be, wouldn't have that approach, but I'm like, there's still data there. So every ticket that comes in, we tag them all and we see, right. 50% of our request, uh, sizing. Okay. So if we're making X amount of revenue and we spend this much to solve this problem, we're going to save this much time and money in returns and also customer satisfaction. Um, and we're already spending that money. So why don't we get an agency to come on board and solve that problem for us? Right or you look at, you get information, you know, um, from the reviews, you know, we've got a customer service review platform and a product review. So we're able to see what people are asking for, what's working, what's not working. Um, you know, there's, so there's just, there's so much and it's, and it's great seeing, you know, our wholesale dashboard versus our where, uh, wholesale and warehouse validating those numbers. You know, if one person thinks we have 5,000 pairs in the warehouse and the other person says we have 10,000, why? Right? Is there a disconnect? Has something not followed through right through? So having that is, is really great for us, you know, to be able to make those decisions and keep everybody accountable and also gives them clarity in, in seeing the trends and seeing their performance.
0: That's fascinating. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, This has been awesome, you know, super insightful. Um, And uh, I think we're about to go get lunch.
1: Yeah, sounds (laughs) great.
0: Let's
1: do it. Let's do it. (laughs)
0: Hey, guys. Dean here again. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that because I know I certainly did. Check us out on Instagram. We are there at Gamma Project Podcast. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't yet checked out the site, GammaProjectPodcast.com. You can go there for show notes, photos, and other cool stuff about the guests. That's it for now. See you next time. Once again, this episode is brought to you by iFit Nourish. iFit Nourish delivers personalized nutrition to your door with protein, vitamins, and minerals to support your individual needs. When you go to ifitnourish.com, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire with basic information like gender, age, height, and weight before providing insights into your lifestyle like your typical energy levels, daily sun exposure, whether or not you're a smoker, how often you exercise, the kinds of exercise you do, and, of course, your goals. In the dietary section, you'll input how much fruit and vegetables you get through your diet, any dietary preferences, like if you prefer vegan or a vegetarian mix, food allergies, how often you plan to drink the shakes, and whether you intend to use them as a meal replacement or as supplements. You can also pick your favorite flavor. Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight, increase your endurance, improve energy levels or athletic performance, or even just maintain – Nourish was created to arm you with the nutrition that you need to go after your goals while also providing a solid daily nutritional foundation. When I went onto ifitnourish.com to try it out for myself, the questionnaire took less than a minute to fill out, and when the system presented its recommendation, I was able to look through the supplement facts before completing my order. Your first personalized order is free, just pay $5 shipping, and you'll get a free shaker bottle. I like to eat vegan as often as I can, so I got two weeks worth of a daily protein shake made from plant-based ingredients. And when you're ready to re-up, use discount code just for you. that's J-U-S-T, number four, letter U, at checkout to take another 20% off any personalized nourish mix. Try it for yourself today at iFitNourish.com. That's i F I T N O U R I S H.com.